Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Shorebirds aren't everyone's favorite, certainly not mine, but one of the coolest things about birding is that there's always something to learn, and even if you haven't gained expert status in a certain family group, you can still participate in things that add to our collective knowledge of birds, much like the International Shorebird Survey that Sam will mention in a little bit. So mass lapwings are a common bird native to Australia, New Zealand, and New Guinea, and they have the binomial name Vanillus Miles, which means winnowing and soldier. Interesting combination. They're the largest representative of the Sherardidae family, um, which have like plovers and lapwings and species like that in there. And they're about 15 inches long with a 30 inch wingspan. They have an obvious yellow spur on the carpal joint, which is kind of like, it looks like their wrists when they're flying um, on each wing. They have a light brown back, white breast and neck, black cap, and yellow face. And males have a yellow wattle. They have a lot of different calls and can be heard at all hours of the day or night. And they're found along edges of wetlands, beaches, and other wet environments. But they can also be adaptable to drier areas. They feed on worms and insects on the ground. So mass lapwings are shy in the summer months, but when it comes to nesting season, they may be easily found making their nests on open ground like parks and gardens, flat rooftops, and even in store parking lots. They nest towards the end of June and are fierce defenders of their territory. They'll attack intruders with their feet and then that spur on the wing, which has led to a widely believed myth that their spur on their wing can inject venom, which is not true. And they also use other diversion tactics, like a kill deer, they'll do the broken wing display, trying to get away from, uh, trying to lead predators away from their nest. So to make your mass lapwing, what you'll need is six ounces of Foster's beer, six ounces of lemonade, and a lemon slice. Pretty easy to make. Pour the beer and lemonade into a pint glass and garnish with that lemon slice. 
For some reason, a shandy just sounded right for this bird. With the bright yellow mask and aggressive behavior, lemonade just seemed like a a fit. And of course, the beer of choice for this is Foster's, um, as it's Australian for beer, if you've ever seen their advertising. So please enjoy a glass of uh, Mastin Lapwing and uh, enjoy learning more about Sam. Okay, well, Sam, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Women Birders Happy Hour. Would you please tell everyone who you are? Yeah, thanks for having me. So my name is Sam Wolf, and I'm a shorebird biologist based here in Texas. Um, I work for Manomet. Manomet's a nonprofit that focuses on shorebird research and conservation. And here in Texas, I am working to increase our knowledge of shorebird migration, as well as protect sites that are critical for shorebirds. So we're doing that through a couple of different ways. I'm working on getting people involved in the International Shorebird Survey. So we have more data to estimate population trends. So if there's any shorebird enthusiasts listening, uh, you can Google Manomet ISS and learn more about it there. We're also putting GPS tags on Wimbrel that use the upper Texas coast for spring stopover. A little bit of background, Wimbrel are long distance migrants and Texas is smack dab in the middle of their journey between their wintering grounds and their breeding grounds. So it's a really big stopover site and they spend about a month refueling and resting there before they're able to continue on to the Arctic. Um, And that stopover site is primarily rice fields which we're learning play a huge role in the success of their migration. They also spend each evening roosting on public land on the refuge. So it's a great example of how a mix of private land and public lands can benefit wildlife with their different land management strategies and funding capabilities. So uh, there's a whole host of things we can learn from tagging these birds. We're interested in learning about their stopover habitat use, migration routes, survival, and, and so on. Um, and I've been with Manomet for about one year now. Before that, I worked in Eastern Oregon for a few years doing bird and veg surveys in the sagebrush steppe. Um, really beautiful country out there. And before that, I got my master's in range and wildlife management from Texas A&M Kingsville. And prior to that, I've gotten to just do a lot of cool seasonal bird work that's taken me to some really neat places. And then going back a little bit further, uh, I was born and raised in Illinois, but migrated south almost uh, 10 years ago. Well, that's awesome. So um, tell us more about how you got into birding. Okay, yeah. So unlike a lot of birders, uh, I didn't start until I was in college. That was about uh, 14 years ago I got into it um, in Illinois. So I was in college getting a degree in biology because I knew I liked wildlife and ecology, but I was still kind of figuring it out. And I was living with my parents at the time, and they randomly decided to hang up a thistle feeder in front of the porch. And so I was sitting on the porch with my dad uh, soon after they put it up, and all of a sudden, a super bright yellow bird with black wings landed on the feeder and grabbed a mouthful of seed. Uh, and I remember saying, what the heck is that? It's so pretty. And my dad was in awe, too, that, that this bird we had never seen just showed up you know, 20 minutes after putting the feeder up. And I think I had to go on the dial-up modem internet to figure out what it was, and it was an American goldfinch. So when I saw that they were year-round residents there in Illinois, I was shocked. Um, 
I was like, how have I never seen this bird before that's lived around my house my whole life? <laughs> so I think that just got me to start to pay attention to birds more. And after that, I ended up enrolling in an ornithology class. And my teacher was an avid birder, so he kind of got me into it even more. And yeah, I guess the rest is history from there. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it, too, was a college course uh, that got me engaged. It's it's really cool how, you know, big an impact, like, you know, I guess I probably would have assumed that college courses have a big impact on your life, but it's just wild how, how big taking an ornithology class can, you know, just change the whole trajectory of your life. Yeah. And the fact that he took us on field trips and was a birder kind of made a difference too. We weren't just in a classroom learning about the birds. We were actually seeing them. That's very cool. So when you go out and go birding, what does a day of birding look like for you? Yeah, so I've been traveling a lot for work recently. So um, generally, I look at my target species for the area that I'm going to ahead of time and then just seek out those birds wherever they've been reported. So I guess I tend to care more about life birds first when I'm traveling and then uh, my year list second if there's no bird, uh, life bird targets. Uh, and then when I'm not traveling, you know, I'm in Texas, so there's a ton of great birding spots where I live. So I usually just go to the big hot spots for fun on the weekends um, in Corpus and uh, Rockport area. And then, you know, chase rare birds when they show up. We'll spend some time in the, the valley from time to time. when We feel like taking a, a three hour drive down there. It's usually worth it. So especially in the winter. Yeah, you live in a great spot that you can get to the hill country easily. You can get to the Rio Grande Valley and have all those migrant yes. traps too. Absolutely. Yeah, we get a lot of good migrants in our yard, too. We've got these live oak trees that just, if you pay attention, there's warblers everywhere in the spring. Wow, that's very cool. So who or what do you feel has been the most influential in your birding? So it's maybe a little bit cliche, but I'd say my mom. Um, she's always been my biggest supporter with birding, especially always willing to go anywhere with me even if it's a landfill, you know, she just doesn't care. Uh, and when I first started birding, I saw a report of a great horned owl at the church behind our house. Um, and so she went with me to go find it. Uh, it was probably broad daylight too, you know, just not knowing anything about birding yet. And we were just walking around the parking lot looking for an owl and there was this lone tree in the parking lot. Um, and we heard a noise and we were like, oh, that's got to be the owl. So we walk over to this tree and for like 10 minutes, we're hearing this weird sound and trying to find it on the branches. Like, where is this owl? And we finally realized it was just the, the branches creaking. So, you know, she's been with me on my birding journey from the beginning, you know, when I, I knew nothing about it. So does she have an eBird list? Is she a chaser too? She's trying to get into it. Um, she is sort of a backyard birder. I'd say she she has feeders and pays attention to the birds coming to her feeder and, and tries to learn them. So she's she's a novice, I'd say. She's just kind of getting started. Well, that's awesome. So yeah. what has been your experience as a woman birder? Yeah, it's generally been really good. I've had a really positive experience as a female birder. Um, you know, but I think... Uh, as I am getting more experienced and older, I guess I'm noticing subtle slights more now than ever. Um, not that they haven't always been there, but just I didn't have the confidence before to maybe realize 
realize it. So, you know, calling out an ID at a rare bird stakeout, you know, after searching for it for hours and then having someone question you, you know, when you said it confidently and the bird is right there and they don't believe you uh, until a, a male stranger says, that's it, you know, that feels a little uncalled for. Um, I don't think that's common. And I think a healthy amount of skepticism is great, especially if you don't know the other person's abilities, birder, birding wise. But um, yeah, it is it is recognizable if you pay attention. I think that, you know, there's not complete equality within the birding community. Yeah, that's too bad that you've had those those situations. I think a lot of us probably have. Mm hmm. So how do you feel that we could be more supportive of beginner birders? Yeah, I guess I would say just, you know, take them out birding with you and show them the ropes and be patient if they're really just beginning. You know, they might not even know how to use binoculars. And so you need to kind of go slow with them. Don't try to get them on a warbler flittering around a tree, you know, immediately if, if they're just learning. Uh, but I think taking them to rear bird stakeouts is is really a good idea if, if that's possible for you because that can kind of get them hooked. Um, they can see that there's other weirdo birders like them in the world, you know, with our baggy khaki pants and sun hats and binoculars. So I think it's just, that's a really good way to realize that there is a community out there of people like them. So um, you, you know, interact with a couple different components of the birding community. Do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? Yeah, I'd say um, some of my best friends are birders, or at least appreciate birds. And birding in nature is kind of my happy place. So if you surround yourself with what makes you happy, then you're going to find your people and in, in your community. That's great. Um, so tell me about your most memorable bird or birding experience you've had. Okay, so this was a hard one because I've had a few different amazing, memorable birding experiences, but I decided to share my masked lapwing that I found in American Samoa, and that was the first ever record that I know of on that island. So I lived in American Samoa for about six months for work. I was running banding stations there, and I typically go running at the high school track on my off time, which I had to drive to. So. One day after work, I decided to go running and I pull into the stadium parking lot and I see this tall white and black bird standing in the football field right in front of me. And I immediately start thinking this is something rare because I was familiar with all the birds on the island. There aren't that many um, and this was not one of them. And we had just had like three days straight of storms. So it was potentially a rare bird that got blown in. Uh, but unfortunately, I did not have binoculars or cell service, so I couldn't look up what is this bird, and I, I couldn't look at it in detail with binoculars, so I had to zip home, grab a field guide and a camera, come back. Uh, luckily, it was still there, and determined it was a masked lapwing, which is a bird that hangs out in New Zealand and Australia most of the time. Wow, that's very cool. Are there a lot of birders in America, Samoa? No, there's not, um, which is probably part of the reason why it's a first record, but still exciting. And I was I was just lucky to be at that place at that time because it, it wasn't there the next day. Oh, wow. So did you folks get a picture of it, though? Um, the other bird around the island did. <laughs> yeah. 
It was two of us. <laughs> I imagine your WhatsApp app chats are just you and them back and forth to each other. <laughs> yep. Yep. Actually, they didn't even have a cell phone because we were in a different country. So I had to physically tell them in person. Oh, that's funny. So where's a place that you think every birder should try to go? Uh, I think the obvious answer is the tropics, just because the biodiversity there is amazing and colorful birds. And um, so I'm excited to go there. I have not really been in South America or Central America yet, but I'm really looking forward to to taking some trips there. Uh, But I think Hawaii is a really good answer for this question because a lot of those endemic birds aren't looking so hot. Um, Their populations are crashing and it's possible that within our lifetime, they'll be extinct. So if you want to go see these endemic birds in Hawaii, you should go now. Um, I went to Kauai and went up to the native forest that's still there on the mountain. And, you know, there were apapanes calling bright red birds that have like at least five different songs and calls. They're beautiful. Um, So birds like that, that are going away quickly, you should really try to see. Okay. So what changes would you like to see in the birding community? Um, So I think the birding community is really open and welcoming place. Like I've, I've found my place there. I think it's, it's a great place as is. Um, But I would like to see more birders making the connection between their hobby and conservation of the birds. You know, if you like watching birds, find out what you can do to, to keep them around. You can make changes around your house, like planting natives and, and keeping your cats indoors. Or, you know, if you're too lazy to plant natives, then just buy a federal duck stamp. Um, birders don't really put any money into wildlife conservation as a whole, but buying a duck stamp every year is a really good way to do that. And then climate change is also a, a factor. So, you know, figure out what you can do to reduce your footprint like just waste less food, things like that. Just little things you can change to do your part. Yeah, that's great. Some attainable things, you know, that are that are easy to do that can have a big impact. Exactly. So I'm going to add in an additional question here. Since you're a shorebird biologist, um, what how, how do people uh, learn shorebirds better? <laughs> okay, so that's a really good question. Um, I think shorebirds are ignored a lot of times because people are just intimidated by that group, right? They're pretty difficult to ID. But if you start thinking of them differently than other groups, like don't look at the plumage, look at the the size, the shape, the gestalt of the bird, uh, bill shape. What are they, how are they foraging? Um, What habitat are they in? Saltwater, freshwater, things like that can be really useful. So using that gestalt method of just an overall view of the bird can really help. And the more you practice, the better you'll get. Go with someone that knows what they're doing because otherwise you'll start questioning yourself about ID and and you'll get there. That's really good advice. Yeah, we, my husband and I end up out here on the beach, you know, a lot of times just fighting over a bird for like 15 minutes. So mm-hmm. definitely. I do that with myself sometimes, do you? you know. <laughs> sometimes if you stare at a bird too long, <laughs> It starts looking different. <laughs> I need to start subscribing to that school of like every bird doesn't need to be ID'd. Yes. <laughs> but that is why the International Shorebird Survey is a thing is because we need people to actually focus on the birds and actually count 
the number of semi-palmated sandpipers and, you know, because right now people are intimidated and maybe a little bit lazy and just put X number of peeps, which doesn't really help data-wise for estimating populations. So if someone were to get involved with um, the ISS, what sort of thing would they be doing on a, in a volunteer capacity? Yeah, it's actually really simple. So we have a season, depends where you are in, in the Western Hemisphere, but for us in Texas, it's basically March to October. And what you do is pick a site that you want to go to regularly that hosts shorebirds and you can visit it once a month, every other week, however often you, you are able to, and then just count all the shorebirds and submit your list through eBird like you normally would, but under observation type, you choose ISS and then you submit it. It's super simple. Awesome. And so if someone were to do that and participate, what are they contributing to? So the International Shorebird Survey has a database. So we, we glean data from eBird and this has been going on for decades. So we've got this huge data set of shorebirds from South America and North America. And it's used to estimate population sizes and see population trends. So we can do that and we can see, you know, our, our species ranges shifting further north. We can see things like that through data analysis. Awesome. Well, my last question for you is what has been the most valuable thing you've learned from birding? So that question kind of sends my mind in overload because birds have been such a big part of my life that I feel like everything valuable that I know is connected to birds somehow. <laughs> uh, birds can teach us a lot. But I guess an obvious thing that it's taught me is that you don't need a lot of money or a lot of material things in order to be happy or to have fun or to make friends. You just need a pair of binoculars. <laughs> That's awesome. So if folks <laughs> want to find out more about you and the cool things that you do, how would they do that? Oh, well, they can reach out to me. My email is swolf, W-O-L-F-E at manamet.org. Or you can go to our website and check out all the research and conservation activities that we've got going on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Hannah. So thank you so much, Sam, for joining me for this podcast. It was very cool to learn about you and also about the International Shorebird Survey and how we can all contribute to that. And thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me on socials, you can follow me at Hannah Goes Birdie on Instagram. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you could email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoBirdingPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour. <laughs>